Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Makers Show. So today I am very excited about the person that uh, we're going to be interviewing. I think that we're going to be learning, you know, a lot about obviously building and scaling companies, but then also about the exit and and perhaps about the ups and downs that are involved in the in the journey of being an entrepreneur. So I guess uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, David Carandish. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So originally born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. How was life there? St. Louis is a good place. Uh, it's located right in the middle of the country. Uh, other than uh, a little bit of summer humidity, uh, it's a great place to work and live. Not a lot of traffic. Uh, a lot of great food. Uh, food scene uh, has really improved over the last few years. I really enjoyed St. Louis. Really cool. Really cool. And I understand as well that you started developing a love for computers. So how did this happen? So my dad was working at a company uh, when I was in high school, and they were giving away all of their old computers. And so uh, he ended up taking a computer they were right about to give away or throw away, and I ended up learning how to code on that, uh, I don't know, two or three generation old computer at that time. Got it. Got it. Really cool. And then after that, you went into Washington University in St. Louis. That's correct. I uh, studied computer science and then got a second major in entrepreneurship. Really cool. And how? What does it mean to getting the um, the major in in entrepreneurship? Is it like reviewing case studies, or or what do they teach you? Yeah, it's funny because it was a pretty new program at the time, and there was a, there were a lot of people who were like, "Can you actually study that?" Uh, but I, I I loved my time in the entrepreneurship program at WashU. Um, they focus on a lot of case studies. To your point on how people deal with challenges in the startup realm, but they also uh, take an interdisciplinary approach. So we would take marketing classes and finance classes and uh, strategy classes. And so you'd have a, a good mix of core business concepts along with studying the, the challenges of getting a business off the ground. So, so I understand as well that right, even before you were, you were graduating, you were already kind of like dealing with with having your side projects and businesses. So, so tell us about those. Yeah, we had a few side hustles going on. Um, in no particular order, we started out 
developing web pages, designing web pages for people toward the end of high school. Uh, at that time, if you could develop a web page for someone, you were somewhere between a wizard and a warlock in terms of your magical powers. Uh, then going into uh, going into college, we developed my business partner and I developed out some technology that would plug into AOL Instant Messenger at the time, uh, almost like a an AOL AOL Instant Messenger bot that could speak the text text messages or instant messages you received out loud. Uh, we had a uh, e-commerce website selling celebrity apparel. We had a blog, uh, fashion review website. We had a lead gen website in the financial services space called Expo Group. Uh, so we had, we had a wide variety of different uh, side hustles uh, through high school and college. So then what happened after college with all those side hustles? Because I understand that you went right into you know what became one of your biggest success stories. Yeah, so, uh, so let's see. The, the timeline, it was my senior year, last semester, and uh, my business partner and I were wrapping up our, our time at WashU. One of the things I wanted to do was get out and just start networking, meeting people, expanding you know, who we knew, uh, not knowing exactly what we were going to do next. So at that time there was a casting call for the apprentice television show at WashU, And, uh, I ended up going to one of the tryouts and ended up making it all the way through to the show. Uh, now that season was the, the season that they ended up doing the Martha Stewart, uh, apprentice. Uh, so I did not get to meet our fabled president. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was on the Martha Stewart Apprentice show. It was my first time in New York. I hadn't, uh, I'd never been to New York at that point. It's the youngest, I believe, the youngest person on the show at 21 or 22. And um, yeah, it ended up being uh, a really interesting catalyst because uh, my business partner and I were about to start a comparison shopping site, but we needed a uh, we needed someone to syndicate their product listings to us. So we had this great idea, but we didn't have much money. We didn't have any website. We didn't have any products. And so I had flown out to California, crashed at my aunt's house, started calling all of the major uh, comparison shopping companies to see if they would syndicate their product listings back to us. Well, during that time, come to find out that Yahoo was who was one of the sponsors of The Apprentice, also had their Yahoo Shopping product at that time. So we used my time on The Apprentice as an in to get connected with the right people within Yahoo. They ended up syndicating their product listings back to us. And that's how we started our uh, first first company at scale, uh, which was called Fine Stuff at the time and later became uh, known as Announced Media or AFCV Holdings. So then, and this was 2006? 2006, yeah, spring of 2006. So let's talk about the early days. How did you guys, uh, you know, build up the operation, and 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 what kind of challenges were you experiencing? Yeah, so early on, uh, we were uh, in an interesting situation where we effectively started a business with one large customer. So when Yahoo is our customer, Yahoo's shopping listings and their search ads. Uh, we had a very large customer concentration, which is usually not something you you want uh, as a business starting out. At the same time, though, it really simplified a lot of things for us because it, it meant that since we had a customer that would 
uh, effectively buy whatever clicks we could sell them as long as it had hit their traffic quality thresholds. That meant that we could go focus on building out the marketing platform and make that a core competency of ours. And so we ended up uh, generating a, a, a large list of search engine marketing-based keywords that we could go advertise on, build landing pages for, uh, drive traffic to our various properties, eventually not just in shopping, but in other categories like health and autos. And that uh, that model allowed us to scale very quickly. Uh, but at the same time, we had this, we were in this situation where if, uh, if Yahoo sneezed, we caught a cold sort of thing. So here we were, we had a very fast growing business, very concentrated business, very profitable business but we were uh, very reliant on uh, our, our largest partner at the time. So then what did you do to kind of like uh, relieve that pressure? Because obviously, as you're saying, if they were to pull the plug, you guys would be done. Yeah, so we looked at it and we said, okay, we're, we're developing on our own content and we're cutting all these licensing deals to syndicate content or, or receive syndicated content from other, other players. So we went out and said, what if we could find a property or another company that we could acquire that has a lot of unique content, a lot of question and answer based content, and a lot of uh, SEO or organic traffic. So through our search, we ended up connecting with the folks at Answers.com. Answers.com was about $20 million in revenue. It was a public company at the time. Uh, it was, I believe it was officially uh, headquartered in Jerusalem, not unofficially headquartered in, in New York. And so we ended up hiring a bank, flying back and forth to the Holy Land, uh, meeting with the folks at, at Answers.com about joining the two companies together. Um, I had, we had never done any acquisitions at that point. So buying a public company as an international take private turnaround uh with a levered balance sheet, uh, we we like to make it nice and fun for ourselves in that first uh, first pass. And but how much how much revenue were you guys producing at that point? Oh, I'd have to I'd have to go back and and look at it. But you know we were let, let's call it north of fifty million in revenue. North of fifty. And did you guys raise any money to get to the fifty million in revenue? Uh, so we we had a an angel round early on, and then we did a. Uh, around with a private equity firm toward the end of 2007. Uh, but that was primarily to uh, provide a little bit of liquidity to the founding team. And then 2008 happened, market crashed, and had we tried to have had the same, uh, same kind of liquidity event even six months later, that would have been a very, very different dynamic. And so we, I'm going to call us, lucky or smart or blessed or all a combination of all three uh having uh bringing on those partners at the end of 2007 really helped us ensure that we could grow the business but also not um not be in a spot where all of our assets were tied up in the business you know two years in and how much money was raised in total uh so we raised i think we raised about 50 million uh, in that round and then when we went to go do the Answers.com acquisition, uh, we raised, I'm going to say, $100 million, uh, but I believe 
if I remember correctly, all hundred million of that was uh, through uh, debt facility instead of equity. So how does the uh, the raising money via debt facility uh, work? Well, it's it's interesting because when you move through the different funding life cycles, you've got angel, you've got VC, you got private equity, you got debt. Uh, they all have different perspectives in terms of what time horizon looks like, what downside downside uh, protection looks like. Yeah, you know the the debt guys don't they, they only participate they don't participate in the upside. So all they care about is getting making sure that they get paid back. Yeah. Uh, private equity guys are kind of one step earlier where they want to protect a lot of the downside and get a strong return for their investors. Uh, if you move earlier, VCs uh, will take more risk than the PE guys, but they typically still want to see you pass the idea stage. And then angel uh, angel funding is, you know, very much betting on the on the jockey, in my opinion. Um, and so we we looked at it, and we were because our our core business was profitable. Um, we, we looked at the Answers.com acquisition as a interesting opportunity because. The business was doing about $20 million in revenue, but it didn't have any cost of content since it was all being supplied via its wiki. And it also didn't have any cost of traffic because it was all organic traffic. So our view of the world was that $20 million revenue business was really more like a, uh, let's call it a $19 million or $19.5 million gross profit business. Uh, and so we, we had this very divided opinion of the acquisition where you know, some people thought we were crazy for buying this company that was not really growing, uh, kind of an older internet model. Um, and then other people thought, wow, you guys really came in and, and were able to make a great, uh, a great acquisition. So why, why, what, what, why would you say that you decided to pull the trigger on and go ahead with the acquisition. Well, ultimately, we looked at it as a way to both diversify our revenue. I uh, say had advertising partnerships uh, outside of Yahoo, and diversify our traffic. So we no longer had to rely entirely on our paid marketing platform, but also on our organic uh, organic traffic. And it uh, just really helped catapult the company. Uh, most people hadn't heard of our previous properties, but Answers.com was a a fairly recognized, uh, fairly well recognized property in the in the space, and so we we looked at it as an opportunity to uh, kind of bring the bring the best of both worlds together. Uh, Bob Rosenshine and the Answers team did an awesome job building a community driven wiki from the ground up, uh, which is no no easy feat. Um, and so when you combine that with our marketing platform, uh, it's a pretty nice combination. So what were some of the um, things that you were looking at? Because obviously when, when you're doing an acquisition, you know, you guys were doing your due diligence. And what were some of the check marks that were important to you as you were looking into the business? Yeah, so we were looking for a business that would have uh, multiple ways to grow. So we, I like having multiple shots on on goal, multiple ways to go accomplish what you need. And so... We looked at it and said we had an opportunity to both grow the content, add new content types, add new traffic types, add new channels. Uh, so we weren't we weren't reliant on if we 
acquire this company and things don't work out exactly as we planned, then, then we're not in good shape. We, we wanted it to be something where we had multiple ways of, of uh, adding value and, and building the thing out. Uh, the second thing is we obviously had to find something that we could afford. So I think we had set a cap at, uh, I, we couldn't do anything more than $200 million uh, in, in acquisition price. And so uh, there might be other properties we'd want to, wanted to have gone and bought, but we had some limitation on that, on that side of things. And then we also wanted something where in addition to diversifying our revenue and traffic, it would give us a brand from which to, uh, really hang the rest of what we were doing underneath. And so while we had, you know, a variety of different web properties, uh, the Answers brand was the most recognizable. And so this, we, while we acquired Answers.com, it, it really became the parent company or the parent brand for everything we were doing going forward. And how many employees did they have at the time and how many employees did you have? I think, I think we were roughly equal size around 100, uh, 100 employees each. And I know that the, um, and, and in this case, did you guys like bring on board all the employees or did you like do some restructuring there? Uh, so it was a combination. So we had uh, some folks that we brought on and um, some who stayed on for a very, very long time. We had other folks that uh, it wasn't their cup of tea and uh, we decided to part ways. Yeah. So we had, you know, had a mix. But the the fascinating thing was, here we were, we, we buy this company, we're in the middle of this integration and we're call it, I don't know, 90 days in, hundred days in. And, uh, next thing you know, Google makes a big algorithm change that starts to favor sites that are, uh, what I'll call more, more thematic. So a uh, website like WebMD did really well on that update because almost all of the content on WebMD is focused on the health, uh, health vertical. Well, for us, because answers.com at that time, uh, was very, very much a horizontal, uh, we, uh, we lost a significant amount of traffic, uh, actually caused the acquisition to go unprofitable. And, you know, in typical Google fashion, they didn't, they don't tell you what they're going to do. So in the course of about three hours, our, Profitable, growing, exciting acquisition uh, becomes unprofitable. Wow! And so here we were trying to figure out and scramble. What do we? Uh, what What do we do about that? Yeah. So what What did you guys do about it? Uh, so we had uh, really two major approaches that we took. And I guess before 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 David before we even talk about the the correction that you guys put in place. I want to know, because during those tough times, I mean, tough times are really difficult. I mean, we're talking about really dark days. You know, here you've raised $100 million to complete this acquisition. Integrations are a beast. You know, you guys were really putting everything and making this happen. So, so, so what was it like for you? I mean, the experience of, of going through these really dark days. I mean, these dark moments, maybe in those three hours, you know, or whatever that was. Yeah. I can remember those, uh, I can remember those three hours. Um, if you look at some of those, 
movies about stock market crashes and people start jumping through windows and they're wondering what, what in the world's going to happen. Um, it felt very much like that. Um, one of the biggest fallacies that web-based publishers I think had early on was this idea that Google was a partner to help these companies, uh, help these companies rank and do well and, you know, advertise and, and on these types of things. And what we found is that when you can have a web-based business that's been around for over 10 years and it could have a, lose a third of its traffic overnight with no warning, with no stated reason, uh, really cemented in my mind that whatever I was going to do next, I did not want to be dependent on somebody else's ecosystem. And uh, it's it's ironic because the partner ecosystem dependency was how we got started and grew so quickly in the early fine stuff days. Uh, but the being dependent on a ecosystem partner for too long uh, hurt our hurt our ability to grow in a stable fashion. Got it. And so we looked at it and said, um, we've got to stay one step ahead and we got to just fight it out. Uh, my favorite entrepreneurial quote, one of my favorites is that, I think it was Sean Parker who said, your entrepreneurship is like eating glass. Pretty soon you get used to the taste of your own blood. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Uh, it felt very much like an eating glass phase, okay. <laughs> uh, phase of the of, of the business. So then, so then, let's talk about the um, the correction. So now, you know, you you know the news, uh, and the world is falling apart for you guys. So, what happens next? Yeah, so world's falling apart. We we had a two pronged strategy. First strategy was let's go double down on content. By content, uh, that meant producing longer form content, article content to uh, pair up with our wiki content. But it also meant looking into channels, uh, new and upcoming channels. Uh, there was a website at that time called The Facebook uh, that was all the rage with the college kids. Uh, and we, we, we knew early on that Facebook was going to be, uh, was going to be a big thing. And so we started uh, producing more content for SEO, but also building out content that would be focused on uh, acquiring traffic via social media. Second thing that we did, though, is we said, look, uh, we would really love to be in a position where we could take uh, a lot of our technological know-how and go syndicate our Q&A out to other places. So we, we came up with this idea of... Uh, building out a syndicated Q&A platform that we could go place on other other websites. Uh, and that didn't, we didn't really have the model for that yet, uh, but it got us interested in this software as a service business model. And so we, we ended up pretty quickly doing a roll-up in the space where we bought a couple of different SaaS companies, put them together until fast forward, uh, not, not too much longer uh, ahead. And... We now had north of $100 million in revenue uh, from subscription business models instead of our uh, advertising-only business model. 
So then at what point, David, did you realize, man, I think we, we've, we've survived, you know, like this, this really big hurdle that we had in front of us? Yeah, I, I think, you know, you have all the different stages of grief, right? It's like uh, the uncertainty, you have the uh, anger, you have the uh, resignation. Uh, you, we went through all the different different stages. We when we ran into these these issues, but we we fought it out, and we were able to uh, get the company back to break even, get the company back to growing build out these content channels, build out these uh, software as a service acquisitions. And it, it was one of those things where we knew we had a playbook where we, we still had these ecosystem dependencies, but we were moving the company toward a more sustainable business model over time. And so each day uh, didn't get easier because we still had algorithm changes and challenges, but we had a, uh, a path toward a business that was generating you know, north of 100 million revenue, a significant portion of that via subscription, uh, via subscription revenue as well. Really, really interesting. And then, how would you say that? Because I think that the company, you know, like it's it it it's obviously like different resources and needs and requirements from when you're at a 10 million or when you're at a 20, 50, or 100 million. So, how would you say that that those uh, requirements and perhaps the management team or or whatever the company needed to continue growing can you kind of like walk us through that yeah so there are there are different stages of companies in terms of size uh you know when you have 10 people in a room uh it's very different than when you have 600 people in 10 offices uh i think the the big the big thing that we went through is that when we acquired, I think it was four or five SaaS companies in the course of three years, the, we now had offices of people that we never hired. We hadn't, it hadn't gone through our whole cultural vetting process. Uh, these are folks that we brought in through these acquisitions and we couldn't be in every office at once. And so did a lot of tours of duty, just going from office to office, trying to get people aligned and on, on the same same message and also just trying to row in the same in the same direction now when you're scaling like that you end up in this situation where you you have to take on a different role even as a ceo so um whereas early on i had been very much uh kind of a, a business development ceo or sales ceo uh toward that Kind of mid to late phase of, of my last company, we I was doing a lot of M and A, so we were doing a lot of meeting with investors, both on the buy side and on the sell side, and so that was a very different role, even than what I'm doing today, which is uh, is largely a product CEO role. I'll talk about yeah. that in a few minutes. Uh, the the other thing that I, you know, to that point that I really struggled with is that I love to create things. And that was part of the reason why I got into entrepreneurship in the first place. Uh, just love to take an idea, build something, and run with it. And the the acquisition side of things was, was fun, uh, but I I wasn't as close to the to the creation part of what we were doing. So I felt like I got to learn a lot. I felt like I got some immense opportunities, 
Uh, but there was always a there was a part of me in looking back saying, man, I wish I could have gotten a little closer to the product side of what we wanted to do. Interesting. And then I guess, you know, you were talking about like the the M&A and, and how, you know, like your role now was different. You know, I think that the uh, there's a lot of people that choose M&A as a way to um, to grow their business by acquiring other entities. And and most of acquisitions fail and, and they do that because of, of integration. And, and and my question, you know, like what was, you know, hitting me, you know, and, and was coming to mind when, when you were talking about this was, what did you learn about integration and how did you guys, you know, put the right measures in place to make sure that you had the right assembly line to, to get all the pieces to, to click? Yeah, uh, I think from a integration standpoint, the power of culture is so, so important. Uh, you know, an example of this, I can remember when we went to uh, the oldanswers.com headquarters in Jerusalem, everyone had an office. Every single person had an office in that, in that environment. Now, argue if that's a good idea or a bad idea. I actually think there's uh, more research coming out starting to provide a little bit of a backlash to the open office environment, but it was a different culture compared to our St. Louis office where, uh, you know, there were a couple of offices, but most people were in a, in an open, in an open layout, just li little things like that, that you have to, you have to work through as you are, um, as you're doing an integration. We also had, we had some people move from Jerusalem to St. Louis and, well, obviously, I'm a big St. Louis fan. Um, that's that's not a trivial move, uh, especially if you're if you grew up in Israel. Uh, so you had that kind of cross pollination. Uh, conversely, we had another acquisition where we sent uh, our head of product to effectively live out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, that is a way of cross pollinating between uh, between the offices. So I think I think the cultural piece is so important because. Uh, you just you can't underestimate um, how hard it is to change a culture once it's in motion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that the culture is everything, and you know when when you acquire you know a company and, and the culture is already there, it's just it's just so tough to to kind of like integrate that. So I can I can imagine. So I guess I guess let's talk about the acquisition that you guys had yourselves. Um. So so can you kind of like walk us through? How this happened? Yeah, so we were in the middle of trying to take the combined company public, which uh, you know was one of those things where we had this plan to try to get the company to be a majority subscription revenue. We were about halfway through our plan; it was maybe 60, 60 40, almost fifty fifty, and um, the, the problem though was that. We had investors who had been in for a long time. We had uh, markets that had, you know, been opening up, and so we went down this path of saying, "Could we take the company? Could we take the company public? What would that look like?" Well, the I, I distinctly remember going out and meeting with some of the uh, investment bankers, and they were like, "David, this company's amazing, over two hundred million in revenue, headquartered in St. Louis." Um, oh, thank you. Like, well, who who do you want to cover you? 
I'm like, well, what, what do you mean? It's like, well, what analyst would you like to cover your stock if you go, go public? Because, you know, we, we need to figure out what the coverage map looks like. Yeah. I'm like, well, you guys are the, the investment bankers. You, you tell me, like, who, who do you guys think should cover us? Like, well, we've got our software analysts that cover the Microsofts and the Oracles of the world. And then we've got our internet analysts who cover at that time the, the Googles and the Yahoos of the world. Well, they didn't do a lot of cross coverage. So the software guys and gals couldn't make heads or tails out of our media business. And our media guys and gals, our media guys and gals analysts, they didn't understand the power of the subscription revenue platform. And so we were in this a weird situation where we had overcome a significant amount of adversity. We had significantly diversified the business and our plan was working, but in a, almost like a Shakespearean tragedy, we were in this spot where uh, we hadn't moved enough of the way toward being a subscription business to get full credit as a SaaS company, but the media business we weren't also entirely a media business either. So we we didn't have a easy to fit in box from a public company perspective. And so that would have made the IPO process difficult. So we ended up getting approached by a couple different private equity firms. We ended up selling uh selling the almost all of the company to uh one of those private equity firms. And then fighting it out, fighting out all those different algorithms and changes that happen afterwards. And, you know, a few years after that, I, not too long after that, I, I realized it was time for me to go take some time off. I'd been at it for almost 11 years and go start a new company. And that was saying, so, so let's talk about, you know, just really quickly to, to wrap up the chapter with, uh, with answers. So did you guys decide to, to do like, um, like, did you run an M&A process, like when you when all these private equity firms were approaching you, or or how was that managed? So we were running a dual process, which is something I hadn't been familiar with. Where we were working with uh, a banking firm to go through the actually two two firms to go through the public process, and then we had gotten uh, approached by another firm about what it could look like for a a dual track, and then we ended up. We ended up going the private equity sale route because provide almost entirely cash and uh, we didn't have to get through the story piece of getting to 80% or 90% subscription revenue. So then how, how big was the, um, or before I say this, why, why did you guys decide to, to go with the private equity firm that you sold to? Why, why them and not the others? Uh, well, the, the particular firm we were working with had a lot of experience in the, in the, both internet and software space, and uh, it was one of those things where, you know, we we try to make the best decision we could with the information we had. They were uh, great to work with. We didn't have any you know, major challenges uh, along the way. With you know through that process of, of picking, yeah. uh, they emerged as the as the kind of the lead horse. And this was Apex Partners? Mm-hmm. Cool. And how big was the company when you guys closed the deal? Uh, I think we were 
200 and f- around 250 million in revenue somewhere in that range wow how many employees around 600 wow and what was the size of the deal that was reported so uh it was north of 900 million uh there was a small part that got spun off so a technical technically it was around 960 million but let's just say north of 900 million wow almost touching a billion david so ra- rounded rounded unicorn I'm getting I'm getting dizzy here with all the zeros. So uh, any <laughs> any I know I know that you did um, a five month uh, you know off um, type of vacation with with your wife and kids. So um, did you do like any indulgence? Did you buy anything that you wanted to buy? I didn't do anything crazy. I think just taking the time off uh, felt pretty indulgent to me. Yeah. Uh, went up with my wife and kids to Montana. Saw some. Saw some moose. I had never seen a moose before. Uh, <laughs> just like, uh, what is it, Bullwinkle in the right. Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do next. It took, the, the time off was, was very valuable. And I guess during that, those five months, I'm sure that you had the time to reflect and look back into, into your journey you know, with, this, uh, with this business. So what was your biggest takeaway, your biggest lesson? I had so many lessons, good, bad, ugly, but I think the So if you if, if we if we pick one good lesson and what bad lesson, what would those two be? I'd say that the the biggest good lesson is you only see opportunities when you're in the game. Uh there are, use a basketball reference, there are shots that you just can't understand sitting in the crowd that you'd never think of sitting in the crowd, that you can only see, you can only envision, you can only call the ball for if you're on the floor ready to shoot. And you might not have even planned to shoot those shots, but just being in a position, uh, being in the game, being in a position to score, uh, I think, yeah, I think there are things that you just never, yeah, you, you just can't see being on the sidelines. Yeah. What about, the, what about a bad lesson on the bad lessons? Um, I think I was pretty burnt out at the end. I think there's a, uh, for high performing, high achieving, driving people. Um, you, you don't usually, you don't just burn out in a day or a week or a month or maybe even a year. And so, uh, Toward the end of my time, I was really burnt out. I wanted to do something new, and I don't think I even realized it until it was much, much later. And so I, I used both of those lessons in helping to start capacity because I, I, I really wanted to see people do their best work, which is the mission of our, of our new company. Got it. So then after those five months off, you started the, um, the next business, equity.com, and, and that actually uh, was you know, what led to, to your new business, which is, um, which is capacity. So, uh, so can you tell us about the transition? Yeah, so one of the things that I wanted to be able to do next go around is I, I wanted to start a parent company that could help incubate other great 
entrepreneurial successes and do it right here in St. Louis in the Midwest. And that includes both for-profits and non-profits. So my business partner, Chris, and I started Equity.com in January of 2017. And our first incubated company was this company, Capacity. And the, the idea behind Capacity was that we looked at this big wave that was coming with a with, uh, whole artificial intelligence tsunami. We said, wow, this is, this is going to be one of, this is one of those, uh, it's not a page turn or even a chapter turn in technology. This is like a shake the bag, rewrite the rules. This is the type of technology that will upend the way that society functions. Yeah. And so I really was fortunate enough to have gotten into internet advertising when it was super early. So I loved the idea of jumping in and starting an AI company in the very early stages of AI beginning to take off. The second thing, though, is that I wanted to start a company that could address a lot of the challenges that I didn't get a chance to address in my last company. Communication, process, workflows. I wanted to start a company that could help, like I mentioned earlier, really help people go do their best work. I think having come out of that situation at the end of Time at Answers, being burnt out, uh, really place a high value on the ability to work effectively and efficiently and to be able to enjoy your family, but also work 50 or 60 or 70 hours if you need to, but not unnecessarily work more hours than you need to. And so uh, we had this idea of building out an AI platform that could connect to all of your major systems, your apps, your documents, your knowledge base, where if you ask capacity your question, you don't really need to know where that information lives because capacity can go find it, whether it lives in Salesforce or on SharePoint or in a document somewhere or in a knowledge base itself. And that was the, uh, the initial idea. Got it. So then how did the idea mature until you guys were able to really monetize? Yeah, so we set a a uh, parent level goal at Equity that uh, any company we launch needs to be generating revenue in the first six months from launch, or you know what, it's too long. Let's scrap it. Let's go start something new. So on month five, day thirty, true story, we signed our first customer in capacity, <laughs> and then we've been off to the races ever since. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I think we, we've got a couple dozen customers now. It's a software as a service model. We're not beholden to any one customer. Uh, and what's what's been so fascinating about what we've been doing is that as we go into a company and we can connect to more and more of their their systems, their documents, their their knowledge of their team, we're just able to continue adding more value. Uh, the more people that use the system, the more people that uh, more people that get involved. And so I, I've really loved working on a product where the more you use it, the more powerful it becomes. Yeah. Um, it's like a, that's a natural network effect, a natural moat that gets built up in, in the way we've designed the platform. Very nice. And, and I also, my understanding is that um, you guys recently did a rebrand and rebrands are a beast. They are super challenging. I mean, I've, I've gone through a couple. I have, I have other I have other B words I could use to describe that, but we'll, we'll go with beast for now. <laughs> okay. So so then so then I mean I'm sure that there's a, a bunch of people now listening that are maybe thinking about 
changing the name of their business. So, so tell us why did you decide to change the name and, and what steps did you take to make sure that that was a successful process? Yeah. So previous name of the company was Jane.ai. And, you know, we, we had gone down this path of personifying the AI. And so we wanted to give the AI a human name. And Jane stood for the, the joy of accessing nearly everything. And we liked it. And, you know, customers seemed to like it. But over time, as we continued to build, again, back to being in the game, we realized that the platform was where the power was at, not just the bot. The bot is the interface. The platform is where all the, the heavy lifting happens. The other thing is that as we were moving to a platform, we, we wanted a name that you could look at and it would capture the essence of what we wanted to go do. So the same way that we didn't want to be too literal. So you think about, you know, Amazon wasn't called shopping.com, uh, but, but the vastness of it, the Amazon, the, the you know, all-encompassing nature of it, it's a great name for that company. Uh, we wanted, we weren't just going to call the, the company like internalhelp.com or something like that. We wanted it to capture the essence of what we wanted to do. The other thing, though, is that we wanted the name to be something where it wasn't all about us, actually about what we do for our customers. And so we liked the name Capacity because it uh, really reflected a, a multi-layered name where we're freeing up the individual capacity of a single team member. We're freeing up the capacity of an entire team. And our platform works in a variety of capacities. Um, so it it just encompassed the the holistic integrated play that we were going for. It's a huge pain in the neck to find a good domain name. Yeah. Got a lot of war stories on that. It's a huge pain in the neck to go through the rebranding process. Uh, but I, th I think it's been worth it so far. And, and you know, we're actually speaking here with someone that owned, you know, answers.com and equity.com. So, man, you you know a thing or two about domain names. Uh, good, uh, a good name is hard to find and important to keep. So any special tip for those that are thinking about maybe like registering a, a new name and getting a domain? Yeah, I would say you have to start with the longest list possible and you need lots of people contributing ideas. Uh, we ended up with a very, very long list of names, some of which, um, some of which we liked, but we wouldn't be able to get the trademark on or some of which uh, we liked, but they were hard to spell or hard to say. And so we, we ended up, uh, we ended up in a really good place, but it, it took a, it took a while to get, to get the right name with the right branding and the right positioning. And how did you guys finance the operation, David? Yeah. So we've gone through an atypical style fundraising. Uh, we did a seed round, uh, my business partner and I to get the, get the business off the ground. We raised uh, 1.6 million in the seed. It was all internal, uh, internal team members and founders. Then we raised a Series A round, but we waited until after we had our first customers. And so, one piece of advice I would give to listeners out there is, uh, you can get a big valuation jump and and proof point if you can show that 
you've got actual customers willing to do the unnatural act of opening up their wallet, paying you for your products or services. Uh, from there, we grew our customer, we grew our, our, our product, uh, product base, and we just raised a uh, Series B round of just north of $13 million. Now, coming from my previous experience, having worked with private equity and different types of investors, we, we really wanted to uh, be able to maintain a, a lot of control in the business, and we wanted to be able to work with investors that aren't just looking for a quick flip, put the money in, flip it around two years, three years later. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with those types of investors. It's just not the the time horizon that we are working under. And so uh, we didn't go after the traditional VC firms. Uh, we went after a significant number of CEOs and operators through networks like the Young Presidents Organization, through personal networks of our founding team, and ended up with a, a nice diverse cap table uh, without any major concentrated investors. So then why getting investors? I mean, it seems that from the last uh, deal, you know, that you closed almost a billion bucks, you know, exit, you know, two or three generations, you know, that you, you, you could have living, you know, a very comfortable life. Like why, why, you know, getting outsiders to come into your business? Yeah, great question. So uh, while our founding team did participate in each of the rounds, we knew we would need to raise a significant amount of capital. And we also uh, wanted to be in a spot where the connections of the investors could lead to additional uh, revenue opportunities. So in the time that we've been, uh, since we've worked on this, even just this recent Series B round, the number of high-quality enterprise-level uh, introductions we've gotten through our investor base has been staggering. From a just an overall standpoint, while we had a north of $900 million exit in, in answers, by that time, I was a very small portion of the company. So I yeah. uh, was not in a position to finance the whole thing myself, but I was able to participate in each of the funding rounds. Got it. Got it. That makes makes complete sense. And and you were talking about culture, uh, something that you really learned when you were acquiring another, other companies, you know, with answers where you had all this, you know, hundreds of employees. I think you mentioned like something like 600 employees. So the, what did you know for sure that you wanted to make sure that that was going to be around culture for capacity? Yeah, from a culture standpoint, I knew that I wanted to work with people who want to be in a startup and in an early stage startup, and people who can work in the ambiguity of an early stage startup. Startups are not like normal companies. Uh, they're, they're very much their own thing because uh, the, the rules, the rules of the road are, are just very different when, you know, you're not a large profitable, scalable type of business. You're still trying to find your product market fit. You're trying to acquire that next customer. You're trying to get your systems and processes in place. So I wanted to work with people who could work well in that environment. But I also wanted to work with people who could fit with the values of the company itself. And when I, when I think about what we're setting out to do, we want to go create amazing products. We want to help our customers out. We want to do the right thing which you know people talk about integrity in, in a business 
doing the right thing can, you know, encompass a lot uh, of what that looks like. And then ultimately we wanted to have fun. Like, like I said, back to, back to my experience at the end of uh, the end of answers, I, having been burnt out, I, I didn't want to work in an environment where uh, people didn't enjoy it. I mean, one of the things we say all the time is if this is a place where you're not enjoying it for a significant period of time, it's not the right place for you. And that's okay. Uh, we wanted people who are hungry, who uh, were excited to be at the forefront of a new wave of technology. And I'd say, uh, by and by, this is this is the best culture I've ever worked in. Very cool. And and just uh, out of curiosity here, because there is a lot of hype around AI. I mean, everyone is saying, "Hey, I have AI for this, AI for that." So how do you how do you you know kind of like cut through the noise and and you're able to really you know showcase, let's say, investors that that this is the real deal? Yeah, great question. So if you pull up a license plate. In my home state, Missouri is the show me state. And so rather than getting up and talking about all these things that AI could do, uh, we show our investors and our prospects and our team, here's what AI is doing. And for us, um, while there are many different applications of AI, the area that we've zoomed in on is this idea of accessing your company's intelligence and and really using AI as a system of engagement. What do I mean by that? So many companies have pushed their software and their databases and their documents out to the cloud. They've ended up storing these, these items in these systems of record, like Salesforce, like Office. These systems of record are okay. They're actually pretty good systems of record, but they're terrible systems of engagement. Find me one company that likes their Salesforce instance, and I will find you a company that's lying. <laughs> find me a company that uh, had an easy, easy migration path to Office 365, and I, I find you a hundred that didn't. And so the, the way we kind of think about it is that uh, technology is all about abstraction layers, right? So we have an abstraction layer of assembly code on top of bits and bytes. You have an abstraction layer of operating system on top of assembly code. You have an abstraction layer of apps that are written on top of an operating system, on top of assembly code, on top of bits and bytes. At the highest level, you could think of us as that next uh, layer of abstraction, that next system of engagement where you ask capacity your question. You don't need to know where the answer comes from. and the bot will go out and find it and come back to you with it instantly. And, and initially, it starts out as questions and answers or inputs and outputs. But over time, it becomes more guided conversations, workflows, embedding, uh, more of an embedded help desk. Uh, so you could think of what we're doing as a modernizing the stack of how people are supported within organizations. You think of it as an automation suite. Very cool. Very cool. So the um, one thing that I typically ask guests that that we have on the show, David, is if you had the opportunity to to go back in time and 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 have a chat with your younger self, with that you know perhaps that David that was launching you know side projects and doing you know the hustle projects and all of that stuff, 
if you had that chance to sit down with that, David, and, and give yourself one piece of advice, business advice, before launching a business, well, knowing what you know now, obviously, what would that be and, and why? Ooh, that's a great question. One piece of advice I would give to my earlier self. I think I would tell my earlier self uh, to continue to be a student of the distribution channels, how you acquire customers. Uh, so many entrepreneurs that I meet today, and even even a seasoned entrepreneurs can get caught in this trap of falling too much in love with their product and not in love with how you can get that product into the hands of of your customers or clients. And so I would tell my younger self to study the acquisition channels uh, and know them and learn them and make that a core part of what we do. That's really amazing. I think that selling is everything because uh, they build it and they would come, you know, it, it never works. It's all about you sell it and then you figure out how you build it for them and deliver. Yeah. I, I think, um, I, I think that, Customer acquisition is way understudied in the marketplace. Yeah, 100%. So, David, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can uh, check out the Capacity website at capacity.ai, uh, or you can uh, shoot me an email, david at capacity.ai. Amazing. And are you on Twitter or LinkedIn or any of that stuff? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I have a Twitter account, but I, I'm all fake newsed out. So uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn as well. Wonderful. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.